Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey there, this is Tom Austin from Confidently. And if you want to listen to great content about building relationships and entrepreneurship, you should check out the Build Your Network podcast with host Travis Chapel. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Tom Austin. Tom is the co-founder and CEO of Confidently, which is dedicated to making it fun, easy, and effective for everyone to access the science-backed tools of mental fitness training. Tom is also a former co-founder of And One, a brand that grew famous for its trash talk t-shirts and was a cultural movement in the late 1990s and early 2000s. So popular, in fact, that hundreds of athletes tattooed the logo on their bodies and Netflix has a documentary about this movement coming out early this year. As it's going to be such a fun conversation to have with Tom. And I can't wait to jump into it. But first, really, really quickly, if you are an entrepreneur and you've always wondered if a podcast would be a good idea for your business, then I want to talk with you about potentially having my team help you out with your show. Just head over to trapschapel.com slash coaching. There's a quick application there uh, to apply for our private coaching program uh, where we help entrepreneurs build profitable podcasts. So looking forward to chatting with you real soon. Tom, what is up? Thank you so much for taking the time to join me on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Travis. Excited to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. 
So if you ever listen to my show, the first thing I like to do is just kind of take it way back here, build a little bit of context for people that are tuning in and uh, kind of chat about how you got to where you are. So let's, let's take it back, Tom. I'm talking way back, you know, 12, 13-year-old Tom Austin. What was going on in your life? You know, parents, what were they doing? You know, did that influence you? And how was school? All that good stuff. Yeah, so I grew up small town, New England. So 12 or 13, I was living in Westboro, Mass. You know, I, I don't know what the population was, probably 15,000 people or something. It was uh, living with a, a bunch of protected wetlands behind my house. And, uh, you know, it was probably right around the time uh, Atari 2600 came out. Um, so I was playing a lot of video games at my friend's house, riding my bike around, playing in the woods. Uh, going fishing frequently up at this reservoir. And uh, I had a pretty carefree childhood and pretty un, uh, unobserved and unwatched childhood. You know, I would come home by myself, like uh, mm, basically yeah. walk home uh, from the local elementary school with my little house key, which which I would lose, you know, at least uh, at least half the time and, uh, and have to use like a screwdriver to uh, get in the back door. <laughs> so I, I would say, uh, I guess, you know, my parents, from my parents' standpoint, they're both native New Yorkers. My dad had grown up in Brooklyn and, and my mom in Queens, and uh, they have been in the city their whole lives. And um, over the years, they've re relaxed a lot, but they were, they were definitely New Yorkers and kind of wound pretty tight. Um, and so, you know, for me, I would say in terms of like my path to becoming an entrepreneur, there's, I wouldn't say there's much there necessarily, except maybe the independence I had, like I had a huge amount of independence and a huge amount of, you know, my parents always pushed education. I always did really well in school. I was, I was public schools and then Catholic high school, um, all boys school. But so I always got really good grades um, for the most part. I was always pretty good intellectually. Um, and that was like expected. Like there was no, there was no doubt I was going to go to like a good college and, and, you know, kind of do well, or that was an expectation from my parents. So academically I was doing well. I wasn't like super engaged. I was really into sports. You know, I grew up playing sports and loving sports. Um, at that time in my life, I was mostly baseball. I was like a, you know, an all-star pitcher at the, the local, uh, local little league system you know, pretty good hitter who, who became more of a single sitter, less of a power hitter as I got older. Um, and then I, I transitioned into basketball, like basketball became my primary sport in high school. But yeah, so I had a pretty carefree childhood, you know, my dog, my family, playing with my friends, playing video games and playing sports and uh, going around the local local neighborhood and, you know, playing in a very kind of natural environment. Yeah, sure. So when you said that you academics was always kind of just expected. It was kind of part of the package, but you mostly enjoyed sports. So did that, do you think it affect your, your grades at all? Or did, was that always just something like, well, no, this is, this is part of what I got to do in order to be able to be, you know, successful in my parents' eyes or whatever. And then now I'm going to focus the rest of my time though, on all these other things, or did you find any enjoyment or get any enjoyment out of school? And then how did it, you know, end up working out for you post high school? Yeah, so I didn't really actually like school that much. I didn't dislike it. It just felt like like you got to eat, you got to get dressed, and you go to school. Like it's, you know, my dad has like PhD all but dissertation, uh, Georgetown oh, right. undergrad, and then PhD in cognitive psych, and then my mom had a master's plus undergrad, and uh, you know, so it was just an expectation that I would kind of do well in school. But we moved a couple times, so I moved in second grade to Westboro uh, from. Maryland. And then I moved in 10th grade from Westboro up to Nashville, New Hampshire, which is maybe a hundred thousand person town on the Southern border of New Hampshire. It's one of the biggest cities in New Hampshire. 
sports, I think it like helped me a lot. You know, it helped me a tremendous amount of business. It taught me all these life lessons about uh, how to compete, how to work hard, how to prepare, how to deal with setbacks and failure, um, how to be part of a team and a high functioning team. And it also gave me a real sense of identity that kept me kind of like focused and oriented through my teen years and into college and stuff. So like when we moved up to Nashua, it was probably like a month into sophomore year. And that could have been like a really hard transition for me, but I got like my peer group through basketball um, where I was able to, you know, connect right away. And, you know, we moved in October, you know, tryouts are in November or whatever, or October, you know, a couple of weeks in. And so like right away, I kind of had a peer group and that was kind of the model that, you know, through college, I could continue to play basketball through college and then going to two colleges. First, I, I was like a really, so I was recruited by mostly division three schools for basketball, like Williams college and stuff and like did campus visits. And, and then I didn't apply anywhere. Like I was like, I was not super motivated academically, even though I had good grades. So I think my class rank was number four or something. I had good SAT scores and like, a you know, basically all A's. Um, I had like one rocky year, my freshman year of high school, but then we ended up moving, parents put me in a new school, I ended up having like all A's, I had a really good peer group. And, and my peer group was all really interested in uh, in high school about going to college and doing well and like talking about what they wanted to do in their life and stuff. And those are conversations I had never really had, you know, apart from my parents asking me. Yeah, sure. You know, and, and, and I basically just wanted to play in the NBA, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was still waiting for that like D1 scholarship, like long past when I should have been, you know, probably to like a few months ago. But, you know, and uh, so like I hadn't really Finally applied. Finally gave up on it, yeah. Yeah, I, I hadn't, I'm still waiting for that 10-day contract, you know, to the NBA, but so I hadn't really, like, applied to the kind of schools I should have. I hadn't spent, like, much time, you know, I'd done this campus visit to Williams, but then I, like, didn't want to go there because it was too rural. I'd always been rural in my life, but I really didn't, like, apply anywhere, so I ended up going my freshman year to Holy Cross, like, walked on to play basketball. You know, they still had, uh, there was still like a, a pretty good team. Then they had like two NBA players on their team. They still had scholarships and stuff. And uh, the best I could do was like JV, you know, they've obviously, they had like five incoming scholarship players, I think that year. And, and they were all significantly better than me as athletes. You know, my skill level was pretty high. My athletic ability was pretty low. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> For like a division yeah. one, uh, <laughs> you know, division one basketball player. Like I was doing two ball dribbling drills and shooting drills and all this stuff. Like, like you see all the players doing now, like way back then. And I was very like, I was very regimented and dedicated in terms of like how I prepare for basketball, you know, like I had all these strength and conditioning tools and a nutrition program. And I had a workout program with all these videotapes. I was doing film study, like all in high school and stuff. So I learned like a lot more from that probably that I applied to business than, than from almost anything else. Yeah. But, I yeah. Ask you that actually, what do you think? Obviously you've, you've been in business now in a couple of different ways, but big brand that blew up was and one which is a sports type business as well so i'm curious to know you know what those lessons would be top maybe two or three lessons that you've taken away from a sports context that you've been able to apply in a business context yeah i mean the first is team like team is everything the team plus alignment to mission yeah you know so if you look at like what lebron james or what these athletes do as they get older you know the first thing they do is try and attract other free agents to play with them, right because right. no one wins by themselves no so one. like having a team and being able to work and win together and having like common like purpose and what's called alignment in the teamwork literature. Um, but just a sense of common like purpose and miss shared mission and then a willingness to work together through hard times and like pick each other up and stuff, you know, so all the teamwork related stuff is, is definitely number one. Number two is just really to compete. Like you're going to get knocked on your butt. Things aren't going to always go your way. And, uh, you know, you got to learn 
from each thing. Look at look at each setback as a learning opportunity and just figure out, okay, if I'm not getting knocked down, then I'm actually not trying hard enough. You know, I'm not right. playing against good enough competition. Like if you're winning every game, it just means like you should move up a level, right? So, sure. you know, the ability to just compete and and to set out and then like the ability to practice and the value of practice. Um, you know, like how do you actually set goals for yourself? How do you practice? What's deliberate practice? How do you get feedback and look at your ability to improve? So let's say those are the three biggest like life lessons that that transfer over from sports to business. It's just really that, uh, you know, teamwork and then competition and the ability to persist in the face of setbacks and then the value of practice and the ability to break things into small components and engage in like deliberate practice. You know, if you can carry those three things forward, I think like you have a pretty good chance of success and depending how you define success, if you define success improperly, you're not going to succeed, but I mean, you have a better than average chance of success. How do you define success? You know, it depends. You can define it. Like uh, for me as a holistic person, I define success as, uh, am I healthy? Am I happy? Is my, are my kids and my wife healthy and happy? You know, my family and, and direct community, like the people I directly interact with. And then am I doing something that's a net positive in society and uh, that engages me? Then, you know, do, I, do I have some level of financial means where I can take care of my family um, and, and we're not living a, uh, a fear-filled existence? You know? <laughs> like, are we going to eat or get evicted or whatever? But I, I define success more from uh, am I healthy and happy? You know, the people I love and care about around me, um, healthy and happy. Um, and then am I contributing something positive to, to the overall community and world and, and learning and growing and having fun doing that? Okay, so getting back, I just want to have a quick aside there to, to talk about the sports thing for a second, but getting back into the story now. Talk to me timeline, you know, in terms of you're done with college, you're done with school, and then you start doing the and one brand and business that you're the co-founder of. What what's the timeline there and what's happening during that time period? Yeah, so I ended up after my freshman year, I ended up transferring to the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and then once I was in UPenn, I ended up transferring to the Wharton Business School and deciding to major in business. And, you know, my focus was finance, but I also uh, did entrepreneurship. While I was at Penn, I was playing basketball a lot. You know, I was probably playing three, two to three hours a day, uh, sometimes more, probably at least six days a week. Uh, so my primary like social circle connections, um, networks, they were all like people I met on the basketball court for the most part that I connected with. And then in my senior year, I started thinking about, oh, what am I going to do? I didn't really have any great plans. I had a really good GPA. It was probably 3.95 GPA. Um, so it was almost all straight A's at, at Wharton. Um, and I met Seth, who became my partner, my co-founder at M1. He was an MBA student, uh, maybe three years ahead of me, um, age-wise, I think. Um, had a couple years work experience. And he was looking to start a business in the basketball space, a business called the Basketball Marketing Company, um, which at the time was going to be a, a coupon booklet for basketball players. So back in the day, they had these books like the travel travel book and you pay like a hundred bucks and you get like a thousand or five thousand dollars worth of coupons that you could use. So we want to do something similar for basketball where you pay you know a hundred dollars and get two thousand dollars worth of coupons for Nike sneakers, Nike apparel, Adidas products, and whatever. Gotcha. Um, so that was his initial business plan. And I initially met him on the basketball courts playing against each other. And then we started talking about what he was doing and and uh, decided to you know give it a shot together. So we started that actually probably the last month of my senior year at Wharton, which was the last month of his second year in the MBA program. We started working out of his apartment downtown. It was 1993, you know, so on campus plus his apartment. And we went full-time into his apartment. And then the third co-founder, 
uh, Jay had been Seth's best friend growing up. They they played in the same high school basketball team, played, you know, baseball together, went to the same high school. I think they knew each other since middle school. And uh, Jay joined us. He came down from New York, um, had a bunch of jobs. He was a Stanford undergrad, had gone to uh, McKinsey Consulting and then moved into the nonprofit sector. And so the three of us were together probably uh, you know, three months after we had started and then we ended up, you know, obviously eventually pivoting into the M1 business model and uh, doing that for like another 10, 10 plus years together and, and growing that from that initial idea into like an over $200 million business that eventually then, you know, shrunk back a little bit. Yeah. Talk, talk to me about the the beginning stages of And One. I know that it kind of started basically as just a, a peril, right? I mean, and then it just kind of blew up from there. Yeah. So we had this basketball marketing company idea and we had raised like $50,000 from friends and family, uh, primarily of Seth. Um, I think my parents may have invested as well. But And so we tried that for uh, three or four months and you know, it just wasn't going anywhere. Um, it may have even been longer, it may have been up to six months. And and so we were running out of money and it was clear like this idea couldn't work. Um, but we had always had this idea. We had the name and one already. Seth had that, you know, originally as like one of the ideas he had market tested, one of the names he had market tested and stuff. And, and people loved the name. We obviously knew what it meant. And, you know, like I had obviously spent, you know, whatever it was, you know, 30, 40 hours a week playing basketball for the last like seven, eight years of my life. Um, and Seth, likewise, it played a ton. And, um, and so we had this idea of just like, well, you know what, if we had this catalog, we could sell our own apparel line in the back. And so we had been thinking about that for a long time. And we had researched the market a little. We had gone out to a big uh, trade show in Chicago trying to push our original idea. But we had also walked through all the basketball apparel um, and footwear booths and like looked at everything that was out there. And we felt like, you know what, there's really an opening here for a basketball only brand. There's nothing that's there's like Nike started running only then pivoted into everything. And you have Reebok at the time they had bought really the only kind of semi legit basketball only brand, which is this company called above the rim, but they're only doing maybe 5 million a year. Once Reebok bought them, they kind of killed them. But so the only thing we could afford to do though, in terms of like this vision. So we decided, you know what, what we have to really focus on is this basketball only like brand and try and be, you know, just basically like the world's number one basketball company and do everything basketball. So sneakers, own an NBA team, have apparel, you know, whatever it is, like everything basketball, that's, that was our mission, our vision. Um, but the only thing we could afford to do was t-shirt. Um, it was the cheapest thing to do. You could do it domestically. And we actually talked to a supplier who agreed to, uh, you know, finance all the production for us if we had like legit POs. So that was like a local, a local, uh, you know, t-shirt printer called Ampro in, in, suburban Pennsylvania back then. Yeah. So we originally started with t-shirts and then, you know, the, the question was what's going to be on the t-shirt. Like we, we know we want to sell basket basketball players like us stuff. Like what do we actually sell them and what's on the t-shirt? So we tried a couple of different things, but in, in the very first batch, one of the things we tried was, uh, was an idea of a, uh, for trash talk. Like I had actually come up with an idea that, you know, my initial idea was I'm going to put like 30 slogans on a shirt and I can make like four of these, you know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and eventually like, uh, through working with some buyers. And when we started to pitch this idea, people actually flipped, like they didn't like any of the other ideas we had, but like graphic driven tees and stuff. But people like flipped over the trash talk. So we felt like, Hey, we may have something. We ended up starting trying to sell it to local stores. We didn't really know how retail distribution worked. So we ended up going around, you know, we, we got some samples printed. We would photocopy like phone books uh, for different areas or cities. And then we would load the samples into our respective cars and like make a bunch of phone call appointments and drive to these different cities and places with the t-shirts in the back of the car. And 
you know, basically just show people our line and like try and sell the shirts um, for future delivery. So we could, you know, aggregate orders and then get them printed and then ship them out. But eventually we, we learned how retail was structured, you know, with local mom and pop stores, like regionals and then national chains and like who the national buyers were. So within a few months, we had kind of figured out like who the national players were. And we got rejected from meetings for all of them. And like, no one wanted to see us at all, but we finally got a meeting with like a small subsidiary of Foot Locker. They had these giant superstores called World Foot Lockers. Um, they maybe only had a hundred of those versus 1200. Uh, regular foot lockers in the US, but the, the world foot lockers were much bigger, much more square footage. So they had a lot more opportunity to take in more, you know, different types of product. Uh, so we ended up connecting with the buyer there and he really helped us see like, hey, you know, probably shouldn't put 30 slogans on a shirt. You should probably <laughs> pick your five best slogans and make five different shirts and then do it again. You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like so he he helped us a lot. You know, all through all this, we would just constantly ask questions because we really didn't know anything. All the research Seth had done was for a whole different, you know, at his MBA programs for a whole different business. So like we were all starting from scratch. Like how does retail work? How does merchandising work? How does manufacturing work? How does uh, supply chains work? Like all these things, you know. Yeah, we're right. starting from we were all starting from scratch, but what we all had was like we're all smart. We all knew how to learn. We had basic like frameworks for how to learn. Yeah. So I don't want to just ramble, but yeah, that's, that's your basic, uh, I think I answered your question there. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. At what point did you realize that you had something good, you know, cause at the beginning, any, any startup, right. At any, any time that you're venturing into this new entrepreneurial path or journey, there's just so much confusion at the beginning. There's so much testing. There's so much tweaking. There's, you know, almost hourly pivots sometimes that uh, you have to keep making adjustments to keep getting more success. Um, do you remember there being a certain point where it, it just was like a growth inflection point? Or was it always just kind of slow and steady, slow and steady, but just in the upward, you know, no, we were, we were super fast for us. It was pretty, e we were pretty lucky and it was pretty uh, easy to know and point to it. Right. So we came out, we're trying to do a whole different business. We banged our heads against the wall for six months. It may even been a little longer. We blew through almost all the money we had. It was clear the business wasn't going to work, but we had this like plan B that started like evolving maybe three, four months in of like, Hey, maybe we can do a clothing line and like use that as a beachhead to be like the number one clothing brand or whatever. Once we like decided to pivot, we had like a come to Jesus meeting, like, hey, we can't keep doing these two things. Like we had this sunk cost of all this time we put into this other idea and, you know, manually entered like 20,000 names of basketball players into a database and whatever it was. But we got to let this go because it's not going anywhere. And we got to go all in on this apparel. And then right in our first, like we did maybe three different collections, three different styles of tees. Maybe it was only two. Um, it was very clear that trash talk was the best one. And then like a few months into selling, we had pretty strong signals back from local mom and pops and regional players that they were interested in taking some of these trash talk tees. Mm. We had trouble actually getting them to pay us. <laughs> you yeah. know, so we were probably losing money on those transactions, but we had some market feedback. And then anyone we talked to that we knew, we didn't have to go out and do a ton of consumer testing because, you know, we would regularly like interact with 30 to 40 basketball players that we knew that were like the end user and just say, hey, like, what do you think about this? Yeah. So like we had built in market testing. So we knew from the consumer side that players loved it. We knew from like the local and retail, regional retailer side that there was strong re receptivity. And then when we got that foot lot, world foot locker test, it was a pretty small dollar size order, but the, the t-shirts did amazing. 
you know, like maybe a shirt that sells 10% at retail turnover, um, which means, you know, in 10 weeks, they'd sell out of everything. They sell one tenth every week or whatever. That's like a really good selling shirt. Mm-hmm. And we maybe were selling through at 20%, right? So then we got, so we had a strong confirmation signal there. And then we got a meeting with Foot Locker because they're on the same computer system. They saw how well we were doing in their world Foot Lockers. And they basically bought three styles, 24,000 units each. So they gave us a 72,000, uh, you know, t-shirt, t-shirt order, uh, 72,000 units times, it was probably eight bucks a unit or something, you know, so whatever that is, $576,000 or something. So we had like a $600,000 order. Then we're in 1200, then we have basically an ad for our company um, in 1200 stores in the, in the country, in every mall in America. And we started to get calls from every retailer in those malls. And then those shirts sold through at, you know, 20 to 30% a week. So like, you know, within 12 months of making a pivot to apparel, we have booked maybe 1.6 million in revenues and we're like cash flow positive. We're probably dropping at least 160,000 to the bottom line or whatever. Yeah. And we're in pure growth mode in a year after we did probably over 6 million in sales. And like, so, you know, from then on, like, and we had the whole core founding uh, management team in place that would take us up over 200 million. So every department head was in place by then and stuff. And the whole infrastructure, the organization, culture, work processes, we actually never would have need, we chose to raise capital a little bit later. Uh, we we're doing over hundred million sales, but we never would have needed another like funding round after that either. So like we pretty much knew, like once we were in Foot Locker and got those sell throughs, like it was a hundred percent. Like, yeah, we have like a real company. Like we're gonna get to at least twenty or thirty million dollars in sales in like five, you know, four years, like at a minimum. So, yeah, and, I, and I remember too, it was just kind of like this cultural, you know, wave. It was just all over the place, and especially if you played basketball at all, you know, I remember owning a bunch of different N one uh, diff- uh, things. Uh, at what point did you guys start? You know, the the streetball stuff i want to say i'm a little fuzzy on the days i haven't like looked back at any notes or anything so but i want to say we probably we're probably doing about 80 million dollars in uh, sales when we started streetball we're probably about five years in and probably had about 60 or 70 million in footwear sales and 10 million in apparel sales when we and so when we decided to get into sneakers we had to play in an endorser game and we decided to play the same way as everyone else. We had a uh, NBA scout on our on our team who worked who worked with us, uh, Steve Rosenberry, who was a scout for the Supersonics at the time, uh, became the Oklahoma City Thunder. And uh, we were like, look, we got to get the best player. We got to follow the Jordan model. You know, Nike went from a running company to a basketball company. They got Air Jordan, well, Michael Jordan, who they turned into Air Jordan. You know, yeah, right. and they together they rode that to like basketball category dominance, and so. We, you know, always like love Nike, respected them a ton. And, and uh, we were like, we have to play the same game. And so we went after Iverson was our first choice. And we got outbid by Knight, by uh, Reebok. And then we signed Marbury, who was a close second choice. Like we we're, we're, we liked Iverson more, but we thought Marbury would be a, a great brand ambassador. He's a New York City kid, streetball legend, you know, when I think he went four, number four in that draft. And so like we signed him to debut the first shoe and like we tried to pursue that that endorser strategy, but it quick, quickly became apparent like we lost out on Iverson, we went after Vince Carter, we lost out on Vince Carter and we signed uh, Larry Hughes instead, you know, he was our, our, and it became very quickly clear that, you know what, we actually can't win in this game, like we don't have enough money to compete and win against Nike, Reebok and Adidas for top players and so we have to do something else. And so streetball became our our second choice strategy, which was actually the, 
the best strategy for us as a company, probably because it's most aligned with like our roots and who we were with this trash talking brand. But, you know, Nike couldn't really follow us there because they had to sell shorts and shoes to uh, grandmothers and dads. And like they, they were trying to be this big umbrella brand. Right. So they couldn't really be edgy. I mean, they could be, but I, I don't think corporately they wanted to be at sure. that time. Yeah. Um, they wanted to be like mainstream aspirational mainstream aspirational everyone's an athlete you know find your find your inner athlete like they wanted to be that kind of uh you know just do it and and they're really aspirational campaigns for everyone regardless of age or or whatever so you know we really we had to double down on this core identity wait a second we're not basketball we're a particular flavor of basketball we're in your face aggressive cocky um you know, the playground version of basketball, like that's who we have to be, the showmanship style, the flair, the performer, and uh, a lot more the individuality of the game as opposed to some of the team aspects of the game. Although, you know, we created obviously a mixtape tour and team and stuff, but so it's really like we, we kind of had this process, you know, it seems obvious in hindsight, but in the moment we wanted to be something else first, you know, <laughs> we wanted to be like a cooler, edgier version of Nike with the best athletes on the, on the court. Um, like kind of what Under Armour's done. We just didn't have the resources to go do that. You know, they ultimately signed Kevin Garnett. I mean, uh, Kevin Durant and, and Steph Curry and players like that. Right. And like we weren't big enough as an apparel brand to, to take that. So we ended up with this like guerrilla strategy that ended up being, really true to who we were, um, but just having to double down on that. So I would say it was probably like five years in and probably around $80 million in sales or something that we started that strategy. And we started with, uh, we started with a, a tape of Ray Frost and we had had forever, who was also known as Skip to Malou, um, playing up at the Rucker Park in New York, um, Rucker Park in New York, a high school coach. I, I think, uh, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name, but I wish I did, but he had given us the tape and we had had this tape around forever of just like skips, like most insane moves. And uh, we played it at trade shows. We played it in our office and stuff, but it was just literally sitting around it for a couple of years before we we're like, you know what, we can't win this endorser game. Like maybe we could do something with this, this yeah. whole other side of basketball. It's built and like for me, I had just grown up playing basketball, primarily pickup basketball and like going to all these camps and stuff. And like, seeing all these kids, you know, like you would go to these different camps and you trade gear with someone from New York with their Riverside church stuff and you trade them something you had and whatever, all this like AAU tournament playing AAUs and all this stuff. So like I had seen the playground pickup game and stuff. And I always thought that was just like, it was like the coolest part of the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. But, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm curious, man, tell me, we'll talk about, I want to talk about your, your new venture confidently. But before before we get into that, just last question here on the end one stuff. Tell tell us about what happened at the end, and then maybe the top you know lesson that that you took away from the you know kind of meteoric rise and then contraction of building N one. Um, and, and then we'll talk a little bit about confidently as well. Yeah, so a bunch of stuff happened at the end. I mean, it, it could fill multiple podcasts, but the long and short of it is, uh, I personally got really worn down. I spent like ten years working seven days a week and. Uh, probably spent five or six years working seven days a week, completely lost balance in my life. And then, uh, you know, we didn't build a strong enough infrastructure um, to sustain the level of growth we had from like a system standpoint in terms of, you know, HR and, and footwear infrastructure, which, which mm -hmm. I was responsible for. So we had this tremendous growth with a, a relatively stable amount of organizational resources to handle it. So it became harder and harder 
And then we had actually taken a bunch of money that we paid out to the management team and, and some of the early, uh, you know, key contributors and stuff. So incentive structure changed. Um, you know, pe- some people had less motivation in, in the day to day to like have to be there because they they had a, a big financial cushion. What what for us as a, uh, you know, at that time, I was probably like uh, 27 or something like as a 27 year old, it seemed like a lot of money. It's like a married dad of 50. Like it doesn't necessarily seem like a lot of money, but, you know, so we had changing incentive structure and then we failed to build an infrastructure uh, that could, that could handle some of the, some of the growth we saw, um, particularly on the, on the footwear side. Um, and then there were some market changes in terms of like how retail was structured, retail consolidation, where there were fewer players and, and, and the customers had more power over pricing, um, and stuff. So there was this combination of these factors, but I ended up leaving around 2003 and then the company was sold 2005. And so it's continued. It's been sold multiple times, you know, recent, most recently purchased a few years ago and now it's like back in Walmart and stuff, but, but the original team all left in 2005. Um, gotcha. Gotcha. In terms so, of key lessons. Yeah. You know, there's lessons on the rise side and there's lessons on the fall side on the rise side. It's uh you know, ideally work on something, you know, and love in an area, because then when you're going out and doing market research and stuff, like you're a lot closer to the consumer. And then when you're like initially vetting, like, are these good ideas or bad ideas from a marketing standpoint and a product standpoint, you're much more likely to be, uh, to be true and correct, you know? So ideally you could do something in, in, in a space you're passionate about and, and have some domain expertise in, and then you, ideally you can build a great team. You know, we built a great team with a core set of people, uh, you know, myself, Seth, Jay, Bart, Ray, and other people that all became like core foundational people. Like, so we had all the chiefs and, and, uh, and none of the worker bees uh, on, on board early, but we were all doing the worker bee stuff. And then, you know, we ended up building out a, a great infrastructure around that. So our team, our team was really strong, you know, so those are, those are the biggest lessons. Obviously there's hundreds of, of individual lessons, but those are the biggest lessons from like the founder standpoint, on a downside standpoint, you know, ideally you can you can maintain work-life balance, maintain friendships outside of work, and then build infrastructure and systems as you scale, even if it means you, you scale a tiny bit slower, um, uh, you know, so that you're more stable and, and continue to move up in like stages. Um, you know, that's obviously probably the biggest lesson, but you know, there, there are a bunch more. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters 
is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. There you go into if you wanted to. This episode of the Build Your Network podcast will be back in just a moment. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job descriptions, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. I personally love Indeed. It makes it easy to hire great talent, and according to Comscore, Indeed is the number one job site worldwide. That's right, worldwide. Wide. So start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash network. The offer is valid through March 31st. So what are you waiting for? Go to indeed.com slash network and claim $75 in free credit before March 31st. That's indeed.com slash network. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. This episode of the Build Your Network podcast is brought to you by Gusto, the all-in-one HR for growing businesses. You can get everything you need to hire, pay, manage, and support your hardworking team in one intuitive platform. You can automatically file and pay all state, local, and federal payroll taxes, do simple time tracking, time off requests, and more, and have access to a wide range of health and financial benefits and direct access to certified HR experts. That's just a few of the amazing tools that you get with Gusto. And right now, you can get three months free when you run your first payroll. All you have to do is use the URL gusto.com slash Travis. That's G-U-S-T-O dot com slash Travis. All right, let's get back to the show. So, so what do you do after you spend that much time, energy, money on a single business, a single build? What, what do you do after that? Like, what would you do after 2003? And, and what did you do in between the time that you were done with N1 and the time that you're, you know, started uh, with Confidently? Yeah, I did a bunch of stuff. So from 2003 to 2016, I, uh, first I was pretty sick physically and just really tired and worn out. I, uh, I hung out with a woman I was dating who's now my wife, um, for a year, traveled a little bit to try to get like my head back in, like, what do I want to do next? Then after we got married, we moved back to the U.S. We started a family. I went to grad school uh, first for educational psychology back at the University of Pennsylvania. I was looking at system level change in education systems and, and thinking about that as kind of my next step. Mm-hmm. It's been about two or three years looking at that. But uh, at the same time, I got into filmmaking and I was looking at 
like narrative filmmaking and, and how do we you know, tell stories um, that, that kind of change our collective identity. I ended up going to film school at USC um, for three years. And, uh, and then I was doing a bunch of uh, independent, I was doing screenwriting. And uh, when, after I finished film school, I was doing screenwriting and uh, mentoring startup founders and doing some investing stuff for a period of probably uh, five years. And then I did a small startup um, and that, and that got me back into Confidently, which is a little bigger startup where I've been the last two and a half years. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about Confidently. What's the main you know, premise of it? And I know that, I know that you guys are, are kind of in the middle of still building a lot of the, the main features and stuff like that out. But I, I would love to hear what the, the main idea is and, uh, and how it could potentially benefit an audience of full of entrepreneurs. Yeah, 100%. So you know, confidently, I've been at about two and a half years. Um, my co-founders are two uh, two leading sports performance psychologists. So we have the uh, Dr. Alex Auerbach, who's the, the head of wellness and, and performance for the NBA's Toronto Raptors. And then uh, Dr. Amy Athey, who's director of wellness and down at the University of Arizona and works with a bunch of uh, Olympians and elite athletes. Um, and so we came together around a mission of how can we give everyone access to their own personal high performance mental fitness coach, basically give someone access to an automated version of what Amy and Alex do for their teams. There's only about 500 of these people in the U.S. You know, they're used by all the power five conferences. There's there's a high utilization rate, like 30 to 50 percent athletes um, use them in a given you know month, say, Um but there's a limited supply. They're very expensive. If you were to go hire one of these people, they're hundred or $300 an hour probably, plus you probably couldn't find them. And there's all these lessons from performance psychology around how do you build and cultivate teamwork? How do you manage emotions and focus under pressure? How do you set effective goals? And there's all these tools and techniques that they teach, but ordinary people just don't have any access to this. Um, and then organizations for the most part can't bring these people in. Like if I'm a startup founder and I wanted to, you know, let's say we're going through you know, at M1, we're at 20 people and we're on our path up to 150 people or whatever. And I want to give my people access to this level of coaching and training to help them build and maintain teamwork and personal success, you know, the mental fitness tools for personal success. There's no way for me to really access that. So that's like our high level mission is give everyone in the world access to personal high performance mental fitness coaching at the highest level and use tech to do that. And so, you know, we're building a bunch of tools for individuals and organizations we have a chatbot based framework that's a really powerful framework that's that's been like 80 90 percent of our efforts um and then we've also gone through we had a team of uh it's been three to six uh, people of, of similar caliber to amy and alex with them as the lead on the science side and then we've had three full-time creative writers we've just been going through all the research literature plus professional and personal experience that we collectively have to just build and, and refine these simple models that people can use um on an ongoing basis in an, in an engaging, fun kind of chatbot interaction. So, you know, people can just be more productive and stay healthier and, and just kind of have better lives. <laughs> what, That's our big picture mission. Yeah, sure. What, what, what's got you fired up about it, man? Because I, I know, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of, of building out my own software startup at the moment. And I know that there's just like, so there's certain aspects of it that, you know, bog you down. And there are certain aspects of it that get you excited and pumped up for it. What are the, what are the ones that you're excited about? Yeah. So again, the first thing I'm excited about is our team. I, I love the people I work with and then I really love the domain area. So in my personal standpoint, when I, my last few years at M1 and then right after leaving M1, I spent like three to five years, probably about five years studying Eastern theories of mind. 
like meditation, mindfulness, and, and going around and meeting all these teachers. And then I spent three years getting a, a master's and doing some PhD coursework um, in in uh, developmental psychology from like a, a Western standpoint. And then I had done another year and a half project on like a performance prediction from measuring things like working memory, attention span, uh, personality traits, like the hexaco model, Holland strong interest. So I spent like 10 years of my life thinking about these things, you know, besides whatever I thought about just as a manager and team leader at M1. And so this is really a chance for me to like sit down and like try and pull a lot of these ideas together and put them in a framework where I can give like fun, engaging, interactive kind of story or narrative based like coaching to other people. So, you know, for me, it's like this big capstone project, hopefully not the final one, but this project of just like synthesizing, you know, 10 or 20 years of, of like thinking and work experience. And uh, so I love who I'm working with. I love the domain of it. And then I also view it kind of like as a legacy project, you know, I have a, a 15 and 13 year old daughter and I would love to give them like a tool that helps them like learn some of the lessons that I've learned in life. And uh, it's not really made for kids that age right now. You know, they're too young for it. It's made for people probably 21 to you know, 18 and up or something, but I really want to build that. So that's kind of fun, just that how scalable technology is. And like, we took on a huge tech challenge with building this, like uh, just building like a visual chatbot system builder that that like doesn't exist. Um, so that was a big tech project that's taken like 15 months so far. It's just, it's just about done. And so like seeing that come to fruition is, is, is very satisfying. And um, at least stage one fruition, you know, it's not like, a, it's not like stage forever fruition, but uh, seeing that like come together and then seeing the team like get more and more cohesive and, and build some conceptual frameworks that I think can really like help people in these areas. Um, those things have been super rewarding. Yeah, that's amazing, man. I appreciate you so much for coming on the show. And it's been a fun conversation for me, um, just having, like I said, owned and worn a bunch of N1 apparel in the past. <laughs> um, thought that was thought it was cool. And I, and I love the uh, the project that you're working on now. I think it's going to be a, a big hit. Where where can we learn more about it or, or sign up or start using it? Yeah, definitely. So um, we have a big uh, kind of team institution product that we're, we're starting some trials with some big clients some soon. So on the team side, the best thing is just reach out to me, you know, Tom at getconfidently.com. Um, you can also just find our website, getconfidently.com. We, we have a couple consumer apps, um, you know, they're, they're MVPs um, for, for youth athletes. We have one called Get Clutch, and then we have another one uh, in the app store called Confidently. But the, the easiest thing is just go to our website, getconfidently.com, and there's, you know, all the information will continually be updated there. Perfect. I, I want to shift the conversation a little bit now to, to spend the last few minutes talking about relationships and networking because, you know, well, first off, that's what we talk about here on Build Your Network, as you can probably guess. Um, but secondly, <laughs> because, bro, I, I mean, we've been talking for a little bit now. I don't know how many times we've said the word team in this interview, but it, it's got to be a lot of times. And maybe somebody can go through and count them for me or something, but if you're listening. But I say that to say that clearly relationships with people has been at the forefront of literally everything that you've built. Hundred percent. Back to, to basketball and 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 likening, you know, sports to learning how to build good teams. And and, and so if if people and relationships are the are the are the big thing to deal with, then why do you think, Tom, that there are just so many people out there that never take on purpose time away from their business to build relationships with and meet new people? Well, it kind of depends where you're at, you know, like uh, where you're looking at high growth stage, like let's say at M1 and everything's going well, 
I mean, I turned down tons of speaking engagements. I was so locked in on what I was doing. And if I was meeting people, it was like, oh, I need to meet a person to complete a task kind of thing, right? So there's like different phases of your life. Like when I was in school, I obviously met Seth, which was his transformational relationship in my life because together we co-founded M1. He's the lead investor in Confidently through the relationship we built there, like all these things. You know, when we went to trade shows at M1, there's like strong and weak ties, right? When you look at networks. And so a strong tie is someone who's, you guys are like a real part of each other's lives and like the level that of what the amount of the ask could be very high and they would still like come through or do their best to come through for you. So those are like strong ties. Yeah. Those are not things you just go out and like, you know, meet someone randomly and have like a strong tie. They build over time. They build over trust. They build over collective effort and like being there for each other. And they play, they're a valuable part of what you would call a network. And then there's these things called weak ties and they're extremely important to entrepreneurs. It's like, let's say you need to find a new person or whatever you needed. You need intros to people that might fit. And like, all you're really asking someone to do is, hey, like I'm hiring, like, do you know anyone? Or could you forward my resume to people that might fit? That's like a very low ask, right? And, and so there's like a lot more people in your network that would potentially perform weak tie functions, like introduce you to a new supplier, maybe get you to somebody who gets you to somebody that's a key like customer intro or, you know, pass on a job resume or whatever. And so when you're going out to meet people, it kind of depends where you're at. There's certain times where I see entrepreneurs honestly spend way too much time worried about quote unquote networking and like going out to meet people when they don't know what their product is, what their business is, what their space is. Right. And they're just trying to like add friends to Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever. And yeah, right. those are weak tie connections. Um, maybe even ultra weak tie connections. Yeah, right. um, exactly. But then there's times like going to M1 a trade show and meeting people and having five minute conversations and exchanging business cards with a bunch of people. Well, we got a relationship with slam magazine that way, which became a primary like advertising and advertising and editorial um, partnership. We got, we met Lance Simpson who became one of our lead uh, apparel designers for eight years and then de helped design our very first Marbury shoe, you know, successful Marbury shoe with me. And, and, uh, and so like, through these little connections, going to an event or venue where there were aggregations of people in your domain and you could have these productive conversations around a purpose. You know, there's there's many events like that that are really networking events, you know. Um, yeah, right, right. And so, like, it just depends on the phase you're at. Like, what, if you're in between projects and you're looking for a co-founder, like, finding a co-founder level relationship is really hard. No kidding. Um, it's like really hard to find someone where you're like, yeah, there's a level of trust. There's mutual compatible skills. We're both at a life stage where we want to take this risk together and have similar like expectations, you know, for how much we'll work and how right. long we'll stick with it and any personal Marriage. capital we'll put in. Like those things are really hard. So like a co-founder level person through networking, you know, it kind of depends. You have to look at like, what's the functional like outcome goal I want from this networking, right? Like, yeah, sure. And that's going to drive the type of networking activities you do. So you have to look at like, where am I at in my life or my career stage? And what are my expectations for this? And then there's different types of networking activities that meet those different types of like uh, outcome goals. Yeah, right. No, clear. It all always starts with clarity. That's for sure. I got to ask you this, Tom, and then we'll move into our last segment, the random round. But I got to ask you this question because it's the one I've asked every single guest that's come on the show and I always get some amazing answers for it. So here we go. Who you know or what you know, Tom, which of those two do you view as being the most important asset in life and why? Yeah. Again, so okay, I'll give a nuanced answer if it's okay. And then I'll give you like a, a single answer as well. But 
you know, it kind of depends again, like what you're doing and where you're at, I would shade towards it's more who, you know, but like, if you want to, if I want to be a heart surgeon or something, and I know 50 heart surgeons and hiring directors for hospitals, but I have never gone to med school. Like, it doesn't matter like who I know, right? <laughs> like you have to have, usually you have to have like a combination because you have, it's like who you know and how much they like you and care about you and respect you. And so for those people that you know to like you, care about you and respect you, you have to know something. <laughs> but I've seen it work. Uh, you know, ultimately it is more who, you know, cause I have seen people with limited skills who like know really, really ultra net worth people who are incredibly successful. And I, yeah. I've, I've never seen like, uh, I've just like, I've seen that extreme. So like, if you make me pick, it's going to be like who, you know, but for most people, it's a combination and a blend. And it depends like where you're at, you need at least a minimal level of, of competence and, and hopefully excellence in, in one area. So that when the people know you there, they feel positive about knowing you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Let's move into the last segment here, the random round. Just quick random questions, quick random answers. You ready? Yeah. What profession other than your own do you think that it would have been fun to attempt? Well, 100% film director. I mean, I tried it, but I'd love to be a big time film, film or TV director. If you could sit on a park bench with someone and chat for an hour, who would it be? Past or present? I'm going to go future. If you let me, I, I would like to talk to my kids like 20 years from now and find out like uh, what I did well and poorly as a parent. So I can uh, avoid some mistakes. <laughs> That's a great answer. Yeah. I love that answer. I'm going to start stealing that one. How do you like to consume content, books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos? I like everything. I, like, I read a lot of primary research going back to grad school in psychology, got me into like reading studies and meta studies. So I love to go to like high quality source research. Um, but I, I also consume a lot of uh, uh, podcasts, books and, and TV and film. I think they all have something to teach. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I, my biggest struggle is to, is to actually sleep enough. So uh, I usually wake up like a little bit too early, like ready to go and a little bit uh, anxious and excited to jumpstart my day. I'll do a little bit of a uh, meditation, uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes, uh, some breathing exercises in there. And then uh, I usually work out or walk to work. I live about three miles away from uh, one and a half miles each way from my, from my house. So I'll either walk to work or get a quick workout in. And then I just jump in. I like to leave my mornings. Like if I can, I like to leave two to three hours of unstructured time where I can go dive into whatever I think is most important and then get into all my meetings and stuff. And and at the end of the day, do like any bookkeeping, like figuring out what I have to do for tomorrow and like wrapping stuff up and getting back to people. What is your go-to pump up song? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm like, I would go, uh, I would go YouTube, Joshua Tree, uh, something probably uh, where the streets have no name or something. But if I had to pick one. What is something that you are not very good at? Staying balanced and not getting all in on stuff when I'm like invested in it uh, and maintaining that work-life uh, separation. That's that's the thing I struggle most and sleep. <laughs> Those two. As we get everything wrapped up here, Tom, what's one place online where our listeners can go to connect with you the most? If I understand your question, it's still just our website, getconfident.com is the best place. You can find our contact forms and, and kind of see like as new projects get released, you can kind of see updates there. Perfect. Or LinkedIn would be another one. They could go to LinkedIn and find me, you know, Tom Austin, I have a profile on there. So search Tom Austin over on LinkedIn. Can I Yeah, LinkedIn? I'm not sure the easiest search is probably Tom Austin then and one. It'll probably be the I'll probably be first for that. So that's probably okay. the easiest one. There's probably like a few hundred uh, Tom Austins. Probably. Okay. So search Tom Austin and one on LinkedIn. Connect with them over there or go to getconfidently.com. 
Tom to check out the uh, startup that him and his couple of co-founders are working on right now. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, man. I had a fantastic time chatting with you. Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapelcom slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.